Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. Hello, Nir. How are you? Good. Good to see you, Glenn. Good morning. Good morning to you. This is Glenn Lowry at The Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv, and I'm here with uh, Nir Isakovitz, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy and the Founding Director of the Center on Applied Ethics at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Uh, Nir is an old friend. I, I knew him when he was a graduate student back in the prehistorical days at Boston University. And uh, we've been having an ongoing conversation about one thing or another. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Nir. I'm going to turn the chair of this conversation over to Nir because uh, he actually has an agenda of talking about um, memorials and public monuments, which has been in the news lately because of Charlottesville. And uh, I'm going to be the guest, and he's going to be the host, and we're going to have a conversation on that subject. So, Nir, welcome to the Glenn Show, but thank you for relieving me of the duty of having to know everything about memorials and monuments, which I don't do, although I do have my opinions. <laughs> and thank you so much for talking to me, and it's really great to see you again. I hope we Indeed. can see each other in person soon. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to uh, touch base about um, the recent prominence of the question of what to do with uh, memorials to bad people and bad causes, as we could call it for short. Uh, uh, obviously came to the fore with uh, the Charlottesville story, uh, but um, this isn't only, uh, interestingly, uh, an American story, although for us uh, recently it has been. Similar types of questions uh, were raised in uh, Spain uh, after uh, Franco's demise. Similar types of questions are being raised uh, all the time in Germany that does actually a pretty good job with these things. Um, and so it's a broader question. I guess where I uh, want to start with is uh, to ask you about this. Uh, broadly speaking, the trend seems to have uh, switched uh, in the last few years, and these memorials, uh, at least the most prominent ones, uh, are being removed, uh, or at least the trend of the conversation is to uh, removing them. Um, what's your sense of uh, removing these kinds of memorials. I guess we can start with, probably useful to start with uh, concrete examples. So Confederate memorials, uh, a memorial to uh, a Lee, a memorial to uh, a Jackson, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, do you think they should be removed? So once the question is posed, I find it hard to say no to the question. Right. Once someone says uh, Robert E. Lee, he led the Confederate Army, they fought to defend the uh, institution of slavery, uh, it was an abomination, it was wrong, he's not worthy of being memorialized. Who wants to be, I know I don't want to be, the person who stands up and says, oh no, oh no, uh, right. you know, I don't want to engage the, um, the, the debate about whether today, were I erecting a memorial today, would I honor such a person given his history? Right. Um, 
my my uh, there's going to be a but here, and the but is, I sometimes have the instinct. I don't have a careful philosophical defense of this position. I could try to develop one. I sometimes my intuition is leave well enough or alone, don't rock the boat, it's divisive, this is not a fight worth having. Mm -hmm. uh, it's there, uh, it is perhaps gratuitous to um, uh, bring to a head uh, a debate about uh, whether or not it should be there, we've, we've come to live with it, let's leave uh, sleeping dogs lay, let's uh, let well enough alone. Something like that. But even as I say this to you, uh, near it feels mealy-mouthed. Uh, yeah. Also, um, the dogs aren't sleeping anymore. <laughs> say it again? The dogs aren't sleeping anymore. Indeed, the dogs are not sleeping. <laughs> the dogs are not sleeping, and one has to take a stand. So um, I'm uh, somewhat reluctant about having raised the issue, but when once it's raised, I'm unwilling to... Uh, I'm saying all this in a negative. I'm unwilling to defend the monument, so let me just uh, be uh, straight about it. Yeah, if we're going to make an issue out of it, I'm going to be the guy on the side of taking down Robert E. Lee. Christopher Columbus, kind of a different question. Thomas Jefferson, yeah, kind of a different question. In my mind, different for different uh, reasons. But uh, defenders of slavery memorialize, and sometimes the memorials are erected during a period of uh, reaction uh, you know, against uh, uh, the uh, imposition of uh, equal uh, rights, uh, you know, uh, governance for uh, people and yeah. so forth and so on. So it's very hard to defend that. Yeah, uh, I hear you completely. And I guess as I've been thinking about our conversation, part of, I, part of what I wonder about is, is there a serious liberal case to be made uh, for recontextualizing rather than removing or let's put it this way it's harder to make the positive case of what to do with a memorial to a horrible cause and a horrible person if you leave it uh, but there are a few striking kind of arguments my sense is about why it's not an easy question so for example um, there's that old, I think, pretty compelling uh, Mill argument uh, that provides the most famous rationale for free speech. And the basic point there, and I wonder if it could be applied by analogy, is um, something like you allow terrible people to speak uh, and you allow any kind of uh, nonsense, uh, as it were, in the public space even very pernicious nonsense, because shutting that down, to use his language, sort of leaves the sentry sleeping in their post. It brings a sense of complacency. You encounter a scrubbed public space. Uh, your commitments to uh, whatever moral position you have become weakened by the lack of pushback. Uh, and you pretty soon perhaps if the public space is antiseptic enough forgot that this ever happened and i guess something like that can be placed side by side with a very common sense and to me very compelling argument that there's no reason for example to subject people whose experience has been shaped by these causes that are being memorialized to seeing them every day that there's something deeply wrong about that um does and again, Mill's, Mill's argument is to free speech. This is not 
exactly a free speech issue, but does, does the rationale behind it carry any water, do you think? So namely, one reason to leave these things standing is to make sure that public space is disturbing enough to keep debate alive or to keep your connection to your positions powerful and present. I, I think there is merit to that. And, and I want to try to um, ex express why I think there's merit to that by making an observation, which will be controversial. Robert E. Lee, as best I can tell, was not a horrible person. Uh, he served uh, in the U.S. military before he uh, took over command of the Confederate Army with distinction. Uh, he was commandant at West Point. Um, after the war, uh, he continued to have a distinguished career and uh, as, a, as a civic leader. Uh, Washington and Lee University, a major institution of higher education, is named after him. Mm -hmm. um, he was an honorable man. Can it be said? Can it be said that the leader of the Confederacy was an honorable man? It would appear, as best I can tell, I'm not a historian, that he was not a monstrous person. Yeah. That he was a decent person. Now, he fought in a lost cause, and he fought in, in retrospect, we would say, and I think many, many people, of course, said so at the time, um, a, uh, a, a cause that was wrong, that was on the wrong side of, uh, of morality. Um, but he was a man of his time. I mean, he, he loved the state of Virginia and he fought for his state. Um, I, I tried to figure out where he stood on secession. And as best I can tell, he was deeply uh, ambivalent about it and wasn't at all clear that it was the right thing to do. That's right. Um, so, so... Somehow effacing, you know, wiping out from uh, our uh, public memory the fact that this uh, Virginian uh, and this, uh, this uh, uh, gifted uh, military leader uh, uh, fought and died and was honored and was worthy in the minds of many of our fellow citizens of being honored uh, somehow doesn't feel quite right to me. Um, and maybe this is somehow related to Mill's argument about we need to, we need to keep even bad uh, opinions uh, alive for expression so that we can re refute them on an ongoing basis and be you know, reminded of why it is that we believe and affirm the things that we believe. I'm not sure I see the connection directly, but I'm, yeah. I'm, I, should, should the name uh, Washington and Lee University be, uh, be expunged now uh, in virtue of the fact that Robert E. Lee uh, led the Confederate Army? You know? I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things are brought up by that. So, you know, if you take the Mill argument, Mill would probably make the same argument if that rationale holds against removing a Jefferson Davis memorial. And he was obviously, I think, far less honorable than uh, Lee or uh, there's less shades of gray there. And I think the kind of argument being made is you you um, clean out public space from everything controversial at your own risk because a generation or two passes and then people are somehow no longer passionately attached to the objection that they had when no pushback presents itself from the environment that they're in. And But, but in what you said, you made, I think, a separate 
and really central argument. And then if we can take uh, if we can take a different historical analogy, uh, you know, maybe maybe to reiterate or clarify, there can be. I mean, I guess it's a question: Can there be shades of uh, gray in serving a disastrous cause? Can you be an honor honorable person in serving a disastrous cause, or as you say, a cause that turns out to be disastrous? Although, again, many many thought it was disastrous at the time. Um, so, is there a difference between a memorial to a Hitler and a Rommel? Rommel famously abides uh, at yeah. least. The desert campaign to some of the rules of war, refuses an order to execute prisoners, and so on and so forth. Yeah. If we group in Hitler memorials and Rommel memorials, are we losing the opportunity to make distinctions about the ethics of how you wage a war as opposed to why you go to it? Don't we kind of risk ending up with you know, Sherman's famous position about Atlanta when he was asked, you know, why are you burning down Atlanta? And he said, you know, you guys should have thought about this when you started, when you started the war. War is hell. There's no, you know, there's no moral way to fight it, only a moral way to end it as quickly as possible. Tons of people die in the name of that argument. Um, yeah. So, I mean. Now, uh, let me ask you about Rommel. Is he memorialized at all in Germany? That's a good question. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. I guess it's for me. It was a hypothetical about. I mean, I think the German sensitive sensitivity is such, and probably the historical distance in some way is such that they wouldn't allow it. Yeah. Um, that being said, is there a difference between? I mean, I think it's a real question. Is there a difference between a Rommel memorial and a Hitler memorial? Um, I think there is. I think there is, because otherwise, I mean, first of all, you kind of give up an opportunity to think about the fact that people can be complicated, and much more practically, it's a disincentive for decency in the name of the wrong cause. Um, yeah. And do we want to hold individuals responsible for not... Um, committing suicide uh, when they are embedded politically yep. and culturally and socially in a dynamic which in retrospect will come to be seen as evil but which has seized the imaginations of so many of their fellows and they're sort of swept along. Uh, they may have had misgivings uh, to some degree or another but they nevertheless participate and they cooperate. They go along and, and what you're asking of them when you view them historically as having been evil persons not worthy of any honor is that you're, you're essentially imposing upon them a standard of behavior which I don't know if any of us would actually live up to if we were in the same situation. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's very nicely said. In a way, it's the old moral luck argument. Would we successfully pass the tests that were presented to some of these people if we were in their place? But what, Glenn, what about the argument, though, that maybe some of this nuance is meaningful, but what's there to prevent us from removing these memorials, putting them up in museums, and thinking about this nuance in a museum, uh, rather than having to explain to our children who this weird guy on a horse is every time we pass and 
Daddy, why why are we putting up a horse? Why are we putting up a statue to the people who defended slavery? Yeah, yeah, there there is that. Um, no one goes to museums, though, isn't that the uh, you you take it and put it in a museum? You're really taking it down because nobody goes to a museum. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, how how often would that conversation happen as opposed to? the conversation of passing by it. Not even sure that the conversation, by the way, of passing by it happens, but <laughs> the chances are bigger. Um, it, you, you can add, and uh, rather than subtract, there, there can be more than one memorial. There can be a memorial to the Underground Railroad next to the memorial to the um, Confederate soldier right. or something. Right. Although I'm just... That's, uh, <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that's, you know, it's interesting. That's a tactic, for example, that has been used in some places. For example, in South America, some memorials to dictators have been left in place and rearranged, sometimes in a way, by the way, that, you know, dishonors the subject of the memorial on purpose. And there's a question of, you know, what you've accomplished uh, there, sometimes by, just as you suggest, adding another memorial or a set of plaques uh, to this or a counter memorial Intuitively, that seems somehow more attractive uh, to me than than uh, than the straightforward uh, removal, just in the sense that it has the chance of sparking and generating a conversation in a way that removal and scrubbing away uh, uh, doesn't. But I guess it's an open question how how important in the hierarchy of our concerns having conversations has to be, and compared to other interests and other hurts. There's something else I want to, I wonder what you think about, which is we don't all agree uh, about uh, the removal. Some people want the monuments to stand because they believe that what's being honored there warrants even today to be honored. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, infamous or famously in uh, Charlottesville, there were as the president said, and he's been attacked for saying so, but it seems to be self-evident, there were good people on both sides of the debate. There, I've said it myself. I can't believe that everybody who would have come out and said, don't remove the statue of Robert E. Lee, that's our heritage, was a bad person. Mm -hmm. I, I have to imagine that some of those people think of their identity as Southerners or as Virginians as being affirmed by a narrative about our history which differs from that which the people who want to take down the monument would have affirmed. And that narrative would have been something along the lines of, yes, uh, there was slavery and slavery was horrible and uh, it ought to have been ended. Um, but uh, the great bulk of the people who fought in that army and whose lives were devastated when Atlanta was burned to the ground or uh, their loved ones were killed or their that, you know, they were near starvation and whatnot, were, were not evil people. They were just like you and me. They were Southerners. They were Mississippians. They were Alabamans. Yeah. Uh, they were Virginians. Um, and they fought honorably. In fact, John McCain, I don't know if you recall this, in the 2000 campaign when the Confederate flag was an issue in South Carolina and McCain was competing against George W. Bush in the Republican primary there, took the side of the people who wanted the Confederate flag not to be removed from state property and ass asserted that uh, his ancestors had fought honorably under that flag and they wanted it to be honored. Of course, he later reversed his position and apologized for having said this. 
after mm-hmm. the campaign was over. He was trying to get elected in South Carolina in the primary. He was trying to compete for the presidency, and he thought that's what he needed to do. But uh, under that exigency, he, uh, he affirmed that his ancestors had fought honorably under the Confederate flag. All I'm trying to say is, what am I saying to my fellow citizens who have a different historical narrative? It, there's a contestation here that's going on, not only about the uh, physical location of a monument, but, uh, monument, but also about uh, how it is that we uh, think about our history. And yeah. uh, there's a... I, I actually don't have a position here. I'm, I'm just uh, trying yeah. to identify the fact that uh, I'm not sure we're handling yeah. well this contestation and, uh, you know. Yeah, you know, I think this points to a broader conversation about the meaning and the political significance of somehow coming terms, coming to terms with your past more broadly. And it seems like with all of the talk, we're just making some concrete entryways into coming to terms with our past here. And the memorial thing has been part of it. If again, you take a, you take a different geographical example and you think about, you know, how this was addressed in South Africa. I think it, there's two separate issues here. The fact that morally speaking, one cause was wrong and one cause is right, which was true there and true, I think, in our historical case, doesn't change the fact that there's a basic psychological human need for self-justification, for recognition, for some kind of connection with your past. And if you take a punitive tack on these things, which in some ways is understandable and appropriate given the wrongness of your cause, very often what ends up happening is creation of new and stronger social tensions and alienation of the group and so on and so forth. Maybe that's inevitable. So, for example, what the Truth and Reconciliation in South Africa did was it said, all right, we are going to somewhat remove this from a punitive context and create an institution that would trade full disclosure for punishment. And essentially, it wasn't all about necessarily and only although that was part of the criticism of it, uh, putting the whites on trial, but rather creating this kind of institutional space where people were able to say what they didn't know, people were able to say the extent to which, for example, white South Africans were seriously exposed to the anti-communist propaganda. For a while, some of them believed that they were fighting in the you know, cause of Christianity against the a godless communist ANC and so on and so forth. And some some of them broke down and said, you know, we realize that this was a bunch of crap now and we never knew about the extent of A, B, and C. Um, again, there's no exact analogies uh, with these kind of things. My sense is that part of what we're seeing and part of why we don't quite know how to talk through these memorial questions is we're, we're pretty unsophisticated with dealing with our past. The, mainly we've been dealing with our past by, you know, historians and uh, in university seminars. There hasn't been a lot, you know, the, the reparations debate, for example, is 
taken to be weird um, in this country. But it's not. I mean, th there's been widespread reparation debates in a whole bunch of other countries where far enough historically from slavery that this is not going to upset the social order. That's usually when countries have these kind of debates. Somehow we're not able to have it. Um, we're, we're, uh, a person could argue that we're too far from slavery to have the debate. Oh. I mean, who is black? Who is a black person in America today? It, it's, uh, uh, it requires, uh, I think, a kind of essentialist, uh, uh, racialist uh, uh, view to take a person who is of African descent, a part of the American population today, and identify them as a subject of a moral yeah. You know, moral argument that spans 150 years. Who are their ancestors? I mean, they maybe from came from the West Indies. Maybe they come from African immigrants uh, post-slavery. Maybe they're maybe half of their ancestors were Europeans and half of their ancestors are African. It's yeah, it's a long time, isn't it? 150 years. Is there another example of an effective reparations discourse anywhere on this planet that addresses itself to events that are more than a century and a half in the past? Yeah. Um, well, usually what happens is you have a bunch of public apologies after most of the victim population has been wiped out and it's not politically dangerous anymore to apologize to them. Uh, then then you have a rush to apologize. Uh, but no, you're right. You're right. Um, I want to I wanted to ask you, Glenn, um, you know, so as you know, I'm originally from Israel, uh, and some of the reverberations of this for me are seeing with a degree of admiration, for example, what the Germans have done with these kind of questions uh, in some of the major German cities and creating plaques next to houses where uh, Jews were taken out of and, uh, you know, in some ways very low-key uh, uh, memorializations. Um, and but, and not to make any comparisons uh, with this, uh, there was a large-scale population removal uh, in Israel in 48 uh, after the Israeli War of Independence. And some of the places uh, where Palestinians were removed from are sort of bastions of uh, the liberal elite in Israel now. So it's interesting, there's this beautiful, beautiful artist village uh, a little bit south of Haifa called Ein Hod. Um, and, um, you know, like artists everywhere, most of them are well left of center and interested in questions of social justice. They literally live on top of houses that used to be populated by somebody else. A lot of them don't know it, and there's nothing there to remind us of it. And that, you know, that kind of brings up the John Stuart Mill sort of bell for me. Uh, that that doesn't that doesn't sound that doesn't sound good. Do they you say they don't know it? They don't know that they're living on the Well, you know, there's the knowing without knowing. There's the knowing that could become much more careful and much deeper with very little digging and then the digging isn't done. You know? So if you heard something bad happened on the site where your house was built, how quickly would you go dig it up? Does um, does the ongoing uh, conflict uh, between Israel and the uh, and the Palestinians um, in the occupied territories and 
the Palestinian refugees in, uh, in uh, Lebanon and in Jordan and uh, the Gaza Strip. The ongoing uh, conflict, does that impede the ability of people, even progressive people, to erect such you know, so. memorials and all? I think so. I mean, I think, and that's part of what goes into the question of time uh, and how much time has passed that we've uh, been discussing. I think it's, you know, there's a long-standing debate in Israel about the so-called new historians that want to challenge the dominant story about how Israel uh, came to be. And I think the most honest part of the that of that debate is when do countries do this while they're still at war and while they still need to convince their citizens that they should justifiably fight uh, in the name of that cause? I mean, you know, delegitimizing your own origins usually comes after you're pretty well yes. secure in them. And, you know, in a way, whether or not the Israelis have contributed to the length of time that has passed uh, while they're still insecure, I mean, in a way, one question is, how come we're still so insecure here so long after? Uh, you know, it hasn't been 70 years. Um, another, another weird analogous uh, moment, not, not a very religious person, and I kind of uh, became more familiar with part of the Jewish liturgy uh, when I came here. And I went to a reform service uh, a while ago, so that's the sort of more liberal version of Judaism. And uh, I was sitting in the synagogue and reading the um, the, the Siddur, or the so-called uh, text with a series of prayers. And as I grew up in largely Orthodox Israel, there's a series of statements quite harsh about what you have to do with the Gentiles uh, from the old statement in the Siddur, right? Uh, and those were said on a regular basis in Orthodox liturgy, and nobody took them very seriously, but they were said regularly. And as I read the reform thing, they were literally scrubbed out. They were, they were purged. It was a much, much kinder kind of uh, message. So you didn't, you know. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Th these uh, things that were said, did they involve violence? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, kill all, you know, kill all the Gentiles, erase their seed, etc. There, there, there oh. are parts. Um, oh. and, and, and by the way, there, there's parallel, you know, there's parallel stuff in the Catholic liturgy. And then there's movements by more progressive religion to purge them. I see. And, Obviously, uh, uh, just one more question. The origins of this liturgy, does it go, as it were, all the way back? Uh, do yeah. I find it in medieval Europe? It goes all the way back? Or? It goes all the way back to the Bible. I mean, you find, okay. you find uh, you f the actual text are quotes from the Jewish Old Testament about what God says has to be. I mean, you can find these in all major religious texts, right, of what you have to do with the non, uh, with the people outside of the religion. And then as we make progress, we kind of purge our religious texts and our religious ceremonies to fit with our standards. Yeah. I think the challenge that Mill brings up, and in a way this is where we circle back to our uh, question today, is do you make things a little bit too comfortable for yourself when you do that? Or is there a reason to leave things as they are to remind ourselves that things, you know, don't merit complacency? 
In other words, you can say, you know what? We don't say kill all the Gentiles right now, every day anymore, and everything's fine. Um, and, you know, uh, the we don't say the Christ killer stuff in a lot of Catholic uh, uh, liturgy uh, anymore. And so Catholic-Jewish relationships uh, uh, are just fine. Yeah. Um, so that's that's in a in in a way a cousin or in the neighborhood of the worry that I have about removing uh, yeah. removing memorials. Glenn, what's your what's your sense about um, Trump's uh, slippery slope argument? You you alluded you alluded to it a few minutes ago, um, namely where yeah. does this come? So uh, John McWhorter is a. a linguist. He teaches at Columbia University, and he's a frequent uh, conversation partner of mine at uh, Blogging Heads. And he and I have had a couple of conversations about about the monuments, and I've expressed the same misgivings about taking them down without thought uh, with him as I have here with you. And he's pushed back and said, no, they have to come down. And I've, I've challenged him to identify a limiting principle. So I'm, I'm answering you by saying I think Trump has a point. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a limiting principle. Um, not long after the Charlottesville fiasco of Trump's uh, handling of it, um, the Reverend Al Sharpton uh, could be heard to call for the removal of public funding for the Jefferson Memorial. Mm-hmm. He didn't suggest closing the memorial down. He simply objected to the fact that it was being funded by uh, taxpayer dollars and he would allow private funds to support the memorial. Um, and I thought myself personally that that was uh, a bridge too far. I mean, and not just a bridge too far and that it wasn't going to happen, but that it wasn't the right thing to do. And, and uh, I can try to defend that position, but I'm, I'm searching for a limiting principle. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend John finally did, uh, he wrote a little op-ed piece in which he tried to identify a limiting principle in terms of if you were an active uh, agent of abetting the propagation of slavery, that's one thing. If you just happen to be a guy, Thomas Jefferson, who owned slaves and, you know, uh, produced children with one of them, uh, we're not saying that's great, but uh, you're still a founding father. I'm mm-hmm. not sure I find that entirely satisfactory. Um, but, but I do think there needs to be a limiting principle because the institution of slavery, I mean, this is one of the things that bothers me. I should have finished the sentence. The institution of slavery insinuated itself very deeply into uh, many of the uh, uh, social relations and activities of people, including people who didn't own slaves, but who earned their livelihoods by engaging in activities that were necessary to promote uh, the, the uh, kind of agriculture in which uh, the textile industry, the shoemaking industry, the insurance industry, the banking industry, the shipping industry, they were largely concentrated in the northeast of the United States, in the New England uh, area. And a good deal of their commerce uh, rested upon uh, the slave economy, either directly or indirectly. Um, so uh, without a limiting principle, the idea that uh, we can't memorialize or affirm anything that had to do with slavery, I'm not sure how you, how you keep it from um, um, undermining, um, you know, uh, undermining everything. Yeah. Did did you have a different limiting principle in mind? No, I think that's why the slippery slope is slippery. I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't exactly have a limiting principle in mind. And I, I don't 
really want to be in this business. Uh, yeah. And especially when a third or so of my fellow citizens are uh, driven to distraction by and feeling personally attacked by mm -hmm. uh, by the activity. Mm. Uh, so what, what's, what's a better business to be in then, though? I mean, given that... Well, okay. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of being outed here. Um, I think one of the reasons why the, um, the backward-looking enterprise of uh, indicting long-deceased uh, Americans and uh, insisting upon their repudiation, why it has seized the imaginations of so many people, is that the present-day problems of persistent uh, racial subordination and inequality, uh, jails overflowing with uh, young black men, uh, uh, huge differences in social outcomes and uh, education and employment and so on, um, uh, disparities, disparities everywhere one looks uh, in terms of race and a inability of the uh, reformers coming out of the civil rights movement to uh, uh, solve these problems. Um, so uh, we're looking backwards instead of looking at the present day and, and we're engaged in a kind of uh, moral shaming and virtue signaling instead of uh, facing up to the failures of some of the policy efforts and uh, 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 aimed at uh, at reducing the gap between blacks and whites and facing up to some of the realities about the nature of life and some some elements of the black uh, community which are uh, self-limiting and and we want to we want to make the subject one where people want to make the subject one where they can play moral trump cards rather than uh, rather than grapple with extremely uh, depressing and difficult realities and and try to find solutions uh, that would yeah. make a difference there. Something like that. Yeah, no, I, 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 I hear you completely. I, there's, you know, at least two takes on that. One is that there's a, in politics broadly, in political philosophy, there's this kind of, you know, almost therapeutic concentration that you can never move forward without first completely coming to terms with your past. And I think that's a dogma. There's no, that's not necessarily true. There's plenty of societies that actually have practiced a uh, at least partial kind of uh, amnesia or selective amnesia or temporary amnesia. Usually it's good to revisit the amnesia. But for example, again, going to a very different context, Spain after um, Franco's fall, there was this big call to come to terms with what Franco had done to the Republicans, with what the fascists had done to the Republicans, everything from slave camps to torture and prison. And the thought was very quickly, um, if we do that, we are going to, A, probably lose the democracy, but even if that doesn't happen, get bogged down in that rather than make any progress in building the institutions. So they had this thing that was literally called the Pact of Silence, and it was kept for several decades until very recently, until about 2008 or something, where uh, 
the thought was that things are safe enough to perhaps uh, 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 go back there again. And so that's sort of one question that comes to mind uh, from your really interesting uh, comment, namely, to what extent is it a dogma that moving forward on some of these pragmatic uh, and pressing questions always has to be conditioned on getting a okay narrative and having an okay position on the past. Um, and the other one is, is a kind of, and I, I, I may be reading this into your position, so correct me, um, is a kind of trade-off being suggested or it is a kind of trade-off being attempted where we say, we're willing to extend some kind of broader recognition. We're willing to um, seize the virtue signaling, as you call it, if we can cooperate on things that it's easy for us to agree that should be fixed. Is something like that going on? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the statement. Uh, there are things we can easily agree upon, and let's agree upon them because the other things are too hard to uh, to fix. Uh, that's is that what you're suggesting? No, I'm suggesting. I'm asking if if part of what you have in mind is to say, by doing this kind of what you call virtually uh, what you call virtue signaling, we are perhaps missing an opportunity to collaborate on some islands of agreement that we can agree on and rather making ourselves go further and further apart on stuff that we probably can never agree on. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's yeah. exactly. I'm saying, uh, let me just be very direct. Working class, struggling and poor white people like the ones in Western Pennsylvania or in North Carolina or Florida or Ohio who voted for Trump and helped to elect him as president have a lot in common with working class and struggling black people who are uh, getting poorly educated or who don't have work skills or who are being beaten up by the global uh, economic uh, marketplaces. Um, and and uh, the solutions to the problems that confront the poorest of the black communities where crime rates are high and uh, where schools are failing and whatnot, whatever they might be, will never get enacted without voting majorities getting behind whatever the ideas are that we need to, to, to reform institutions and to do better by these people. And uh, that this kind of fight, a fight over whether or not uh, someone who wants to uh, think about uh, what happened in 1862 in a different way than what someone else wants to think about it, is a gratuitous distraction from the actual political work that needs to be done. I'm not saying everybody is on the same page right now. By no means are they. But the discourse that we need to have and the debates that we need to have to get progress on these problems, say there are too many policemen killing American citizens. I think that's probably true. I think that you could think seriously about reforming the way that police behave. Um, but they're killing twice as many whites as blacks in any given year. The black rate is higher in proportion to the population, but so is the black criminal offending rate higher. Um, if, if I actually want to do something about that, I, I've got to get people of all uh, ethnic uh, persuasions around the table to get this stuff like that. So it may be very idealistic of me, 
But but yes, I'm I'm saying this kind of fight, this kind of symbolic fight, yeah, uh, is uh, uh, if it's going to uh, crowd out um, actual political deliberation over present day actions oriented toward empowering and increasing the opportunity for disadvantaged Americans wherever their racial or ethnic background. Uh, then it's 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 not a good thing for that reason. Yes, yeah. that that is what I'm saying. I want to I want to raise one other issue and and wonder how you would react to it. So Christopher Columbus, I mentioned this earlier. Brown University has renamed our fall uh, break weekend uh, Indigenous Peoples Day. It had been called uh, Columbus Day uh, weekend, and now it's in Indigenous Peoples Day weekend, and that's fine. I'm not objecting to that. Uh, Columbus uh, statues have been defaced in certain places, removed in certain places, and I'm struck by that. Now, I understand the logic. The logic is uh, he was uh, the, the leading edge of the European incursion, which ended up uh, as a genocidal uh, decimation of the native population of the Western Hemisphere. And that was bad, and people want to object to that. Uh, my thought about it, though, is that the, the phenomenon of the West, of Western Europe, coming into the, quote, new world, as they saw it, was a tr tremendously, you know, 1492, a tremendously significant turning point in the, in the history of human civilization. The modern world that we inhabit doesn't exist but for that dynamic. It had horrific consequences. Yes, it does. And we stand on the foundation that was laid therein. Without endorsing either Columbus's personal attitudes, I don't know that much about them, and without trying to gainsay, the, uh, to, to minimize, uh, to, to make light of uh, the uh, devastating consequences for the native population, uh, I find it odd that the makings of one's own modern world that the, the roots of one's own civilization would be seen primarily in terms of, I mean, isn't it convenient? Isn't it convenient now that we enjoy uh, the, the uh, global civilization that was created by the expansion in the conquest, in part, by, in substantial part, by the uh, expansion uh, that uh, Columbus was a leading uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, agent of, now that we enjoy that, now that we inhabit this world, we look back at its origins, and uh, all we have to do is wag our finger. They, uh, it, it, seems, it seems superficial uh, in my mind somehow. It's, it seems like cheap morality somehow. Uh, I'm not giving back anything. I'm not surrendering anything of the life that I enjoy in virtue of the developments that occurred. I'm simply wagging my finger. Am I off yeah. base here? No, you know, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's causally obviously true that you don't get to the moral structures that we have and want to promote without having passed through that early point. So to some extent, you can't get to B from A. So I, I, I agree with you on that. Um, there's probably also a more sharp version, a much more sharp version of the anachronism uh, and the uh, exporting of contemporary moral standards to Columbus's time than there is to uh, uh, Confederate times. Um, so the moral criticism 
uh, by abolitionists of uh, slavery, uh, I think, was something quite different from uh, the moral criticism at the time of expedition uh, expeditions to the New World. Um, so I think that's probably worth bearing uh, as well. I mean, I think, again, in a way, part of what we're circling around is to what extent is coming to terms with your past psychologically and politically necessary for making progress or for sustaining the progress you have, or to what extent is it some kind of a red herring um, that that's distracting? It's probably neither. Um, you know, one other one other thing uh, that strikes me um, in what you say. And this is a symptom, I think, of liberal uh, polities uh, more broadly. They are very suspicious about their origins. Uh, and how to say this? Um, in terms of historical scholarship, given our contemporary moral standards, there's really good reasons to be suspicious about uh, our origins. This usually happens, interestingly enough, when some of those who pose threats to us are almost fetishistically in love with their origins. So part of what fundamentalism is all over the world is a um, celebration of origins and a refusal to accept that time has passed. If you look at some of ISIS's political philosophy, what you find there is that the world has to be returned exactly to as it was in the seventh century and everything from the length of pants to the uh, shape of political symptoms to the revival uh, of uh, 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 sexual slavery and so on and so forth. Uh, so that's, as a comment, that's an interesting mix to me. Um, the kind of uh, powerful rejection skepticism of our origins, uh, that that's pretty widespread tendency in the West uh, versus the opposite uh, uh, tendency. I'd, I don't want to take the further step that uh, skepticism of one's traditions, origins, and so on and so forth makes one politically weaker and more susceptible in war. Um, I think we've done okay. Uh, but it's it's... And, you know, maybe it's just a legacy of the kind of skepticism that in the end comes from the Enlightenment. And that is the result of that problematic past, as you were saying earlier. Um, but it is a striking difference. Yeah. All right. Um, I think maybe we can call it a conversation at this point. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Glenn. Uh, thank you so much, Nir. This will go up on Blogging Heads, but it will also be a part of your, it will be the inaugural uh, edition of your uh, podcast on ethics at the Center for Applied Ethics at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. All right. Thanks, Glenn. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, same here. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.